Let's pray. Father, thank you for what is happening. Thank you that not only did we start this worship service a year ago, but how exciting it is to see us being led by a group of people in their 20s and 30s, Colton leading us in worship, Jiho being taught how to lead as he led this morning, Gabe crushing it on announcements. Thank you for the staff that we have and the volunteers who are making all of this possible. God, as we talk about advancing your kingdom together, may we have eyes to see how incredible that might be, minds to understand and grasp what is taking place, and hearts and hands that say, count me in. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. So God, may your will be done in each of our lives this day. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. What are you here for? What are you here for? Not right now, this exact moment, Sunday morning, October 27th at Ellerslie Church. But big picture, what are you here for? Why did God put us on this earth? What it is that makes us get up in the morning? What keeps us driven each and every day? A few years ago, a number of us were at a conference, and there was a speaker who told this incredible story. He had done very well for himself, and he was excited to pick his mom up from the airport, who had never seen his new home, had never been talked about what had taken place in his, his life up to this point. So he was excited to see her, to show her what had happened. And so he goes to the airport, he picks up his mom, he gives her a big hug, they're chatting all the way up to his car, and he says, Mom, I've done so well, I've been able to buy this luxury sports car. He didn't say if it was a Porsche or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, but it was obvious that it was something pretty impressive. And his mom said, hmm, handed her the luggage, he opened the trunk, and he put it, put it away. The conversation to his house was a little bit tense. He thought, well, I thought Mom would be excited, but maybe... Maybe I haven't impressed her enough, but when we pull up to my house, that will impress her. That will show her how successful I've become. So they arrive at his palatial estate with a well-manicured lawn and more cars all over the place in a modern-day mansion, and his mom, rather than just being terse, says nothing at all. Open the trunk. She grabs her luggage. She pulls her own luggage into his house, and she sits down at his kitchen table, doesn't even take her jacket off. And he's thinking, what's going on here? She looks him in the eye and says, are you trying to impress me with your fancy car and your swanky home? What have you done with your life? And he thinks, what have I done with my life? My car is worth more than the average house. Look at this palatial estate I have. I have sold and built many organizations, and I am worth hundreds of millions of dollars. What have I done? And then it all hit home. She didn't care about what he had accomplished. She didn't raise a young man to have all this money. She wanted to know, what have you done to promote human flourishing? What have you done to help your fellow man? He said it changed his life. Which brings us back to that opening question. What are we here for? What is it that gives your life purpose? What is it that gives our lives meaning? Timothy Keller, a Christian author and speaker, says this, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment, if only we can attain them. 
That wealthy business owner thought he had made it. He was worth an exorbitant amount of money. His mom was coming to visit. He was going to pick her up in a luxury sports car, show her his palatial estate, and have a wonderful time together. And then suddenly this man, who thought money was everything, was struck with the blow by his mama. What have I raised you for, son? How many of us, myself included, are trying to figure out what it means to be successful in our career? What does it take to impress our boss, our staff, our clientele? How many hours does it take at the office or the job site or in our homes after work to make sure that success is attained? What do we need to do? What education do we need to take? What kind of work will it take? How many hours, how much time to see this success take place? Well, what are we doing it for? Is it for our family? Is it so we can be proud when we look in the mirror? What about our family? Whether you're hoping to start a family, you've got young kids, a house full of teenagers and empty nesters, what does it mean for them to be a high priority in our lives without, as Timothy Keller says, deify them and make them the center of our life? A successful career, making money, having a family, these are good things. But is that what we're here for? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have a whole bunch at the Connect booth. We'd be happy for that to be our gift to you this morning. Or if you want to open up your phones or your tablets, you can download um, Bible.com app. You'll have a Bible with you wherever you go. The Bible can be a little bit confusing. If you open up the table of contents, you'll find two words there. It'll say the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is anything that happened before Jesus. The New Testament is Jesus' life and ministry, and everything happened about the first 50 years after his death. In the New Testament, the first four books are referred to as the Gospels. Gospel simply means good news. The good news about Jesus, about his work, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And near the end of those Gospels, all four of them more or less say the same thing. Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Shortly after this, he gives them a few more instructions in the book of Acts, and then he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. Acts chapter 1 says, as the disciples, think apprentices, were watching Jesus ascend into the heavens. Two men dressed in white stood beside them, and I'm paraphrasing here. They said, well, what are you waiting for? Get to work. You've been given your great commission. Go and do it. Well, one of these men who eventually joins the disciples is a man by the name of Paul. And he takes this incredibly serious. He wants to make Jesus famous all over the world. And so he goes on these missionary journeys, traveling all around the Mediterranean Sea. He leaves Jerusalem and starts traveling to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Corinth, and many other cities besides helping plant churches. The rest of the New Testament following the book of Acts is a series of letters, also called epistles, that are written to all these different churches and people. As Pastor Mel started the sermon series last week, he spent most of the time focused on Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and this is what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Here is Paul writing from prison. A man who people respect deeply, a man who is gifted with wisdom and understanding, who is persuasive and loving, who wants to engage people in conversation or show God's power through miraculous healings and events. 
and he's writing to the church in Philippi. And he doesn't just say brothers and sisters. He says saints. Average people like me and you with regular jobs, raising families, doing whatever they can. And he says, you are the saints. I love this line from last week's message, let your limits point to the limitless of Jesus. It doesn't matter that Paul is in prison. He is going to use that for God's glory. It doesn't matter if we've only been a Christian for a year. It doesn't matter if we are simply a homemaker who just drops off their kids. We can use that for God's glory, even at the school parking lot. It doesn't matter if we work a whole bunch of hours. How can we leverage our work for the glory of Jesus? He says, enough with the excuses. I want to give you something that shows how unlimited the potential is. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part of the outline today is advancing the gospel. We'll start with Philippians chapter 1. This is verses 12 to 14. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am chained for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't just some foreign uncle that the Philippians have only merely heard of. He helped start the church in Philippi. The Philippians care for him deeply. They care for him so deeply, we're going to find this out in a couple weeks, that they actually send their friend Epaphroditus to go and check on Paul. Find out about Paul. Are they treating him okay? Is he sleeping all right? Is he being fed? Is he being beaten? What's going on over there? Let's make this personal. Just a few minutes ago, you saw Gabe stand up and give the announcements. What you might not know is what Gabe and our other intern, Kyle, and the rest of our terrific youth leaders are doing in our youth ministry. Two weeks ago, we had an all-nighter. We had 75 students show up, 60 of whom stayed for the entire night, playing all sorts of games, hearing about Jesus, watching movies, having a great time. He alluded to it, but let me unpack it a little bit more. Two days ago, they had bread night. Another youth group from, uh, from, I believe it was Fernie, came, and between the two youth groups, there were 150 kids here. They're playing dodgeball with dinner rolls. They're having jousting matches with baguettes. They were tossing nan bread into places. They were sculpting with pizza dough. I don't know what they were doing, but what were you doing on Friday night? Not that. They were having a good time. We love Gabe. And every year, our youth group goes down to Mexico and does a mission trip. We've been doing it for nearly tw uh, 25 years. But imagine something went horribly wrong this past summer. Imagine the Mexican authorities said, you know what, we don't like what you're doing here and we don't want anybody to hear about Jesus. One of you is going to have to stay back and they are going to have to pay the penalty for what took place. And Gabe says, you know what, guys? You go back to Canada. I'll take one for the team. I watched Prison Break. Those Mexican prisons look terrible. And so we start to wonder, is Gabe okay? Is he sleeping? Is he eating? Is he fine? What's going on? What's taking place? How come nobody has heard what's happened to Gabe? About a month goes by and we get a letter. And Pastor Mel opens it. And he says, oh, I can't wait to share this on Sunday. 
And we read this letter from, from Gabe. Greetings to my friends at Ellerslie. I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. My fellow prisoners have all heard about Jesus, and two of them are in a Bible study with me weekly. He doesn't even talk about his well-being. Forget about my well-being. That doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel is being advanced. And what has happened to me has inspired more people to talk more courageously and fearlessly. We look at our limits. And God says, but there is limitless potential. So why are we here? We're here to tell people about Jesus. But it's a little bit scary, isn't it? In Edmonton, we probably don't have to worry about going to prison. But what if we're ostracized from our friends? What if we're socially alienated? What if we don't know the answers to the tough questions? What if we say the wrong things? Don't worry, friends, it's going to happen. Over the last six months, twice, I've said the politically wrong thing from this pulpit, and I've had my hand slapped, and I had to ask forgiveness for it. I have a degree in theology, and there are still times where I think to myself, God, I don't know what to say in this situation. I went to a Catholic high school, and when I talked about Jesus, my friends like Dave enough, we don't want to hear about that. This past round of Alpha, I invited three people to come. All of them said no. Well, this is important. I've also stood from this pulpit and others and seen lives radically transformed. I've had the opportunity to talk to people in my house and while on walks and in coffee shops and in my office and tell them about the good news of Jesus and to see their lives their lives transformed. I have invited people from Alpha who have had their marriages restored and then become leaders in the church. And before they went to Alpha, they didn't want to give a rip about Jesus. And I find this fascinating. It's as much through Paul's successes as his failures that the gospel is being advanced. It's as much as through his success as his failures as the gospel is being advanced. If all you heard was, hey, I'm Paul. I've started a dozen churches. I wrote most of the New Testament. And when I walk around, my shadow hits people and they're incredibly healed. You'd be like, can't do that. True story. He was chased out of cities. He was imprisoned. And people fell asleep during his teaching. Sign me up. I can do that. No problem. It's as much through his successes as his failures that the gospel is being advanced. Verses 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I'm born and raised in Edmonton. Uh, I went to Bible college in uh, Regina, but I'm pretty familiar with what the church scene is doing. And it's a little bit hard for me when I hear people say, oh man, did you hear about this other church and that incredible production that they put on? Have you seen that brand new church building? Did you hear what that church is doing with youth ministry? Wow, is that preaching at that church ever incredible? And you take a deep breath and you go, okay, God, you're being glorified in other places, and that's exciting. But then you've got to say, ask yourself, who are we? We're here to bring Jesus to life in southwest Edmonton. And how are we doing that? 
I've already talked about Gabe and Kyle and our youth leaders doing a terrific job among our youth ministry. But one of the coolest stories I've heard about our kids' ministry recently is somebody came up to me and they said, you know, a couple of years ago, I had to drag my kids to Sunday school. It was not their thing. Now, since Kelsey has put her team together and to put her stamp on it, our kids are dragging us. They cannot wait to come to kids' church on Sunday morning. However, as much as we prepare our staff and our volunteers, we need everyone in this room and in the main auditorium to say, you know what, this is exciting. I want to be a part of what's happening here. So how do we do that? Two weeks ago, I got a brand new phone. I'm probably a little bit annoying because I'm showing my wife and my friends all the features of this new phone. And one of the features that I absolutely love, which I thought was just silly to begin with, is it has facial recognition. So I'll show it to my wife, and she'll go, yeah, I got a punch in the passcode. And I say, I don't. And I look at it, and boom, it opens. I was showing one of my coworkers, hey, look at this. And it says, upcoming event. And I said, not for me. And I look at it, and it says, Christmas planning meeting. I'm probably a little bit annoying. But most of them are going, that is really cool. I think my wife wants to upgrade her phone now. Sometimes when we talk to people about Jesus, we might be a little bit annoying. But how are we going to know, pardon me, this, how are we going to know unless we start engaging them in conversation? How are we going to know unless we invite them and tell them about this good thing that's happening here? About how excited we are as adults to be a part of what's happening at Ellerslie, how much our kids love coming to youth group and to kids' church, how much is taking place here on a regular basis that we want to be a part of. If you don't have people you're praying for, can you take out your phone or if you like to write it down, write it down on the back of your bulletin. Who are the two or three or five friends that you're going to pray for? And a hint from my own life, this has transformed how I pray. Pray for them first. You're going to get to praying for yourself. You're going to get to praying for your day and your family and the activities at hand. Pray for them first because then you know you've prayed for them and it's taken care of then bring it up in casual conversation. You might think, Dave, you and Mel talk about this. How do we do that? Here's an easy tip. Ask your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your classmates tomorrow morning, hey, what did you do on the weekend? And they'll say something like, hey, I played soccer on Friday night, I had some friends over for a party on Saturday, Sunday me and my wife just did some errands and cleaned up around the house. And then what are they going to say next? What did you do? Oh, well, on Friday night, I didn't go to bread night, so it wasn't that great. But I went on Saturday, I had um, my daughter's birthday party, and on Sunday I went to church, and then I watched some football. And you just slide it in there. They know you go to church. They know what you believe in. Then that invitation, I'm stealing this line from Pastor Mel, I think it's terrific. Hey, you know, one day I'm going to invite you. So you haven't invited them yet, but they're thinking about it. And one day they might say to you, hey, when are you going to invite me? And then you're going to say, we have this coffee house coming up, and it's going to be amazing. We have a pastry chef who's going to make delicious desserts. We have a local roaster who's going to give out free coffee. We've got two bands going on. And one of the biggest compliments we got last year, this is a gym? It was decorated so nicely. If you didn't come last year, check it out this Saturday. It's great. If you did come last year, bring friends. How do we include? 
I love this line. I forget who said it. It's one thing to be invited to the party. It's another to be asked to dance. (laughs) I never got asked to dance. I totally understand. (laughs) What if after service ends, we don't go and talk to our best friend at the church? What if we make a commitment to ourselves? I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to one other person before I talk to somebody I know. I want to ask them how they're doing. I want to get to know them. I want to see how they're connected here at Ellerslie, and maybe I can help get them connected here at Ellerslie. We talk about invest, about bringing Jesus into life in southwest Edmonton. I am so grateful for this auditorium that we can worship in here on Sunday mornings. I love it. And for those of you who financially sacrificed to make this happen, thank you so much so that we get to express our love for Jesus here in a contemporary way and in the main auditorium in a traditional way. I think that's fantastic. If Kelsey or I haven't talked to you, Kelsey is our children's director. This past year at summer day camp, one out of every five kids came from a home that did not attend church. That's 20%. The Sunday following summer day camp, we had 22 families register their kids for kids' church. And those are only the families we know about. Your financial commitment has changed people's lives and for some of these kids, their eternal destiny. We have people learning about Jesus in Alpha right now and exploring what that means. We are sharing the gospel with people all around the world. Church tradition over the last few hundred years has been give 10% of what you make. And some of you might go, whoa, that's a car payment. That's a sticker shock amount of money. It is. And if 10% seems overwhelming to you, that's okay. But what if you say, you know, I want to be a part of what's going on here. And I'm inviting people and I'm including people. And I'm willing to give a little bit of my hard-earned money back to the church. If you're a percentage person, maybe you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to start with 2 or 3 or maybe stretch myself to 5%. If you're working right now and thinking a percentage doesn't mean anything, maybe 50 bucks or 100 bucks, and you think, I'm going to start there. And I'm going to start giving that to God and see what he wants to do because, brothers and sisters, lives are being transformed. And without your financial commitment, that's not possible. So thank you for those of you who give. It is changing Southwest Edmonton. So how are we going to advance the gospel? We're going to invite, we're going to include, we're going to invest. But maybe I've jumped the gun. Maybe for some of us, we just have to be at that place where we put the gospel first. This is verses 19 to 26. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, says the Apostle Paul, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. At the beginning of this 
message, I ask the question, what are you here for? And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm here for Jesus. I am here to make disciples. I am here to see the church grow and expand. And it's where I got the title for this sermon uh, today, Unstoppable. So let me paraphrase those verses and tell you what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, do I have freedom to just go about and continue on from Philippi to Thessalonica to Ephesus and to all the other churches? Awesome. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. And you're sitting there and you might be thinking, yeah, all right, I can do that. Then things didn't go so well for him, so he gets thrown in prison. The Apostle Paul goes, great, I'm in prison. I have a captive audience. I'm going to tell all the prisoners, I'm going to tell all the guards all about Jesus because they can't escape. They have to put up with me. And someone might say, Paul, um, you know there's solitary confinement, right? That ain't going to go well for you. Oh, but it will, says Paul, unstoppable. When I am in solitary confinement, I can pray for all those churches. I can send letters to all those churches. It'll finally give me a chance to write and to pray and to sing glory to Jesus because lives are being transformed. And they go, Paul, you might be killed. Killed? Awesome. Then I get to be with Jesus face to face. It's the best thing ever. The apostle Paul is unstoppable. Where our limits end, Jesus' limitless begins. Here in this room, we have people all over the spiritual map. Some of you are seeking out God and trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. Some of you have just committed your lives to Jesus, but you don't really know what that means. I'm here. Now what? Some of you have committed your lives to Jesus and saying, I know what it means to be a disciple, and I can't wait to get people more involved. But putting the gospel first, that can sound a little bit intimidating. I do not mean for it to be binary. Either we have a good time in life or we're Christians. It doesn't have to be that way. This isn't about sports and hobbies or go to church. This isn't about prayer group or hanging out with friends. This is about looking at the parents in the hockey rink as another small group to be a part of. Talking to them about life and about parenting and about what it means to be a good mom and dad. This is about giving your absolute best at work because you know that when you honor your boss, your clients, your staff, God is ultimately being honored. This is about using your position on the parent-teacher association to help human flourishing take place at your local school. This is about your friends knowing that I don't know who I can count on, but I can count on that person. It's about using your influence to make Jesus famous. I put this PowerPoint slide together way too late last night, so I apologize that Justin Bieber is floating in the clouds. (laughs) I don't think quite that highly of him. When Justin Bieber was 13 years old, Scooter McGavin discovered him on YouTube singing cover songs. Within one year, he had sold over a million singles as a 14-year-old. Over the next five years, he has hit 13 times platinum on one of his albums. He has extravagant wealth. And last month, to 118 million Instagram followers, he said, you have no idea the hell I've been through over the last few years. With all of this money, with all of this fame, I spiraled into depression, I started doing drugs, and my life is miserable. I share this with you 
because Jesus Christ is the only way I've got through it. And I am so grateful for Jesus and my pastor who have helped me survive the last few years of life. And I am dedicating my life to following him. A few years ago, there was a large church before um, online church became really popular. And so they were in a meeting and they said, how is it that tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are online and we can't get church online to really succeed, to really flourish? And I would have loved to have been in this meeting when this came up. I don't know if it was an intern. I don't know if it was somebody young or somebody old. And uh, he said, well, you know what people search for online? They're like, what's that? I heard people look for sex online. And the church goes, that's a great idea. Let's buy some Google AdWords. And whenever someone searches for sex online, it'll say, looking for sex online? Try church online. And their church boomed in numbers. (laughs) Unlimited gospel potential. Our limits, Jesus' limitlessness. I don't sit in hockey arenas. I'm not a part of any seniors association. I'm not currently sitting through dance recitals, and I'm not on the golf course. But you are. You drop your kids off at different schools than my wife and I drop our kids off at. You're in different work climates than I am. You live in different neighborhoods than I do. You're part of different associations and boards and cultures and groups and hobbies than I am. We have unlimited gospel potential. And God willing, we're going to see that gospel advance. But for that to happen, for us to reach that unlimited gospel potential, we need to work together for the gospel. This is verses 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is going to be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I have. The New Testament letters, also called epistles, are written to both correct and encourage the listeners. Paul hasn't been encouraging them. Don't worry about me. Look at how the gospel advances. Do you see what happens when we put the gospel first? There is unlimited potential. Take another look at verse 27. It's the second half of the verse. Stand firm in one spirit. Contend as one body. Some of your translations might say, strive side by side. In one word, alignment. The church I was a part of before I came here, one of the elders would often say, think about what we could do if we would stop fighting with one another. The Philippian church is absolutely divided. Check out Philippians 4 too. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. In other words, leaders, get it together. Church, 
Work with them. Let's see what happens when we can be aligned. A few years ago, I was playing soccer, and my team got promoted. That means you win the division you're in, so you go to the uh, next division up. And we were pretty good. We dominated the division we were a part of. So we thought to ourselves, well, we probably just make, need to make a few tweaks, but we're going to be just fine in this higher division. One of the guys we brought on was an absolute train wreck for our team. An outdoor soccer season is quite short. It's only 14 games in the first half of the season. <coughs> Zero wins, five losses, two ties. The coach is a really good friend of mine, so I pulled him aside and I said, Coach, we got to get rid of that player. He is a cancer to this locker room. It is destroying us. I know I've brought it up before. Please, get rid of him. I still think we can salvage this season. To my surprise, the coach actually did it. He gave some of his money back. He gave him a transfer release form so he could play for another team. We were 0-5-2 in the first half, 6-0-1 the second half of the season. One guy got rid of alignment. We have an amazing church family. Sid Coop, who helps Gabe and Kyle work with our youth ministry and, and show them uh, where we're going and what we're doing, came here for training day. And in this room, we had about 175 people. And he looked around and he said to me and Mel, I don't know if I've ever been to a different church that has so many different cultures, so many nationalities, so many different people represented in one room. That creates a little bit of challenges for all the good that comes with it. Different cultures, different values, different backgrounds, but coming together, saying, will we be aligned? Do we believe that we can make Jesus famous in Southwest Edmonton? Do we believe that that can take place? In 400 BC, a Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates was known for expressing gratitude that he was born a human, not a brute, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. And the Jews took over this idea and said, why don't we make that one of our morning prayers? And so they turned this into the Jewish prayer book. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has, made me a gent uh, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. A Gentile, if you're wondering, is anyone who's not a Jew. They have not taken any inclusiveness training yet. If you have a Bible with you and want to follow along, you can flip over to Acts chapter 16. This is amazing. The Apostle Paul and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, arrive in the city of Philippi, and they say to themselves, hey, it's Sabbath, let's go looking for a local church to find. And they don't find any, but what they do find is a group of women. And so the Apostle Paul tells them all about Jesus, and Lydia, a well-off woman, says, that's amazing, I'm in. And she gets baptized as well as her whole house, and the church in Philippi starts with a woman. Very next verse Paul and his traveling companions are walking to that place of worship, and a slave girl is following them along who is demonized. She's possessed by a demon, and with this demon, demonic possession, she is able to foretell the future and know things that are taking place. And so she follows the apostle Paul around and says, these men are from God. They're worshiping the one true high God. And Paul doesn't want this kind of attention yet. So he turns around and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, demon, get out. The slave girl becomes a part of the church, a woman and a slave. Well, the slave traders aren't terribly impressed. They were making a whole lot of money off of this girl. And they've got some political power, so they say to the local guards, let's throw this guy in jail. 
And so the Apostle Paul and a couple of his companions are praying and singing to God and a big earthquake hits the jail. The jail doors fling open, the chains become undone, and the Gentile jailer is about to kill himself. When the Apostle Paul says, wait! Not one of us has left. We're all still here. And he says, why? Why are you here? And the Apostle Paul says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And the Philippian church starts with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. You don't think they had alignment issues to overcome? You don't think that woman said, you know, I'm a little bit tired of financially supporting this whole church. Can someone else help me out a little bit? You don't think that slave girl looked at men and thought to herself, what's he going to do to me? When is he going to put me in chains? Who else is going to abuse me? And you don't think that Gentile thought to himself who takes care of hardened criminals, can anybody change? I don't know if I can do this whole grace thing very well. But the Philippian church started with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Unlimited gospel potential. Working together, putting Jesus first, shows what can take place. Earlier I mentioned that Jesus had been given his disciples some final instructions before he ascends into heaven. And here's what he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. To modernize that, you will be my witnesses in Edmonton, Alberta, across the nation of Canada, and beyond the globe. Can you imagine the conversation when Jesus arrives into heaven with one of his angels? Perhaps a couple of the angels get together and they say, Jesus, um, we've watched over the last couple of years. These disciples you have are down from 12 to 11 because of Judas. They didn't exactly turn the world upside down. They made a lot of mistakes. Are you sure they're right for the plan that you have? And Jesus looks back at these angels and says, it has to work. It's the only plan I've got. Unlimited gospel potential. They expanded from the Mediterranean to continents around the world in more than 2,000 different languages over the span of 2,000 years. And we are sitting right here today because of those men and women. We have unlimited gospel potential. Let's change the world. Father, thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for the reminder that you can do amazing things. Thank you for the reminder that on this, the first anniversary of what's taking place here at Ellerslie with two different worship services, that you are glorified in two different styles of worship for one common mission, to make Jesus famous in southwest Edmonton. Help us to recognize our own unlimited potentials for your glory, filling us with your spirit, giving us courage and boldness to share the good news. And may we see lives transformed, baptisms take place, and a church that is buzzing with gospel excitement. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.